Welcome to another episode of the Almost Awakened Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful to be here today. Got my three friends with me. We've got Brittany Hartley, Jana Spangler, and Anthony Miller back for session 11. We've got one more after this. We're almost there. We're almost to the finish line. I feel like I'm the guy who's going to trip over the hurdle today. We were trying to, we're using uh, Jack Cornfield's uh, Buddhism for Beginners. It is a uh, program on Audible. The There are 12 sessions. We are in session number 11. And uh, today, what does he call these? These are the 10... Perfections of the Heart. The 10 Perfections of the Heart. And uh, we're going to kind of just name five of these and talk about them. We'll just kind of go around. If we each spent time talking about each of these 10, we'd be here for hours and hours. So we thought we'd name the five and then just kind of let the four of us um, just add in some thoughts about any, you know, any few of these that are kind of on our mind or things that we're thinking about. So uh, he names these and hopefully I I name them similar or the same. Um, Number one, generosity. Number two, uh, virtue or slash integrity. Number three, renunciation. Number four, persistence or energy. Number five, discernment or wisdom. And we'll start with those five. So generosity, virtue slash integrity, renunciation, persistence slash energy, and discernment slash wisdom. Um, Any of you three got anything on those five that you want to just kind of start us off with? And we'll just kind of uh, bounce around with each other talking about these because this really is when these 10 things are operating in any given moment, you can almost guarantee you're being present and, uh, and aware of kind of what's going on in your life at that very second. Um, all right, I'll release, I'll release, release the reins. You guys are, you guys are, you guys are on what, what are your thoughts? I'll go first. Um, the thing that stood out to me was instead of trying to achieve perfection because you're bad, it's this approach that you're inherently good, right? And so it's this approach that uh, you are removing your barriers that are keeping you from your innate goodness. And that is a, a different, that's an Eastern approach. It's such a different approach than kind of our Abrahamic religion approach, which will either say that we're fallen or you need to try to strive for perfection and these kinds of things. Um, and so for something like generosity, if you start with you're inherently generous, you inherently know how to love, but there's a barrier there of uh, clinging that is kind of stopping you from your innate generous self, then you don't have to do any striving. You don't have to say, oh, I've got to work harder to become a generous person. It's just this internal, what what am I clinging to here that's stopping me from my innate generosity. And that's such a that's such an interesting kind of flip on perfectionism um, or trying to become better because it comes from this place of you're already good. And I think that that's really mentally healthy place to start. Um, and so for something like for something like generosity, you know, there's a class, a very popular class uh, from the science of, from Yale about the science of happiness that actually does studies and says, hey, if you are feeling down and you want to go spend $30 and go get a pedicure, you will actually get a bigger mental boost if you go get that gift certificate and give it to someone else that will actually give you a bigger boost of happiness or joy. And so I just, I just love this, this idea that, um, that all these, all these, uh, 
attributes, you know, virtue and, and generosity and love, that you already know how to do those things. You just have to be aware of the barriers that are stopping you from being really present and naturally loving towards towards everyone else. It's it's just it's shattering the illusion of separateness rather than striving towards some kind of perfection or you need or you need God or you need this kind of sacrament or you need all these external things in order to strive for perfection. And that's just been a mentally healthy place for me to try to improve. So I'll just start there and you guys can go next here. Yeah, I'll just say one other quick thing about generosity. And I just want to echo, Brittany, what you said about there's such a different feel that if we just let go of our small small self, our body of fear, that these things just naturally occur rather than the striving. That that just, it, it, to me, my little Christian raised perfectionist heart just sings when I when I think of it in that way. Um, but and and along those lines, one of the things um, that Jack mentioned when at the end of this section on generosity that just struck me is he was talking about um, he, Gandhi was asked a question: Why do you do so much for India? And Gandhi said, "Well, I do it. For, I don't do it for India. I do it for myself." Um, and then Jack goes on to talk about, you know, for the look on the face of a starving person, we will give a lot. We hope that we're the one that baked the bread that could give it to them. And so it's speaking to this joy that we get from this kind of generosity, which I, I, it strikes me that from our Western view, we're into this false modesty thing. Like, I'm not supposed to get any joy. Especially from, women. From giving. Yeah, right? especially We're, women. You're absolutely right. We're not supposed to get joy from this. We're not supposed to revel in it. We're not supposed to do things because it's good for us. But it is good for us. And let's be real and present to that as well. I, I just, I loved that idea. Yeah, I have a, I have a few thoughts too. Um, uh, jumping on what Britt was referring to in terms of in Western thought, many of these, I would call them maybe core values or or attributes there's there seems to be this transactional relationship with it you know so so when we talk about generosity um you know jack talks about the joy that we experience from giving to others which isn't perfect because there are people who are very generous who still experience depression and anxiety and things like that but certainly there is this a generation being generous helps those things but jack talks about tentative giving where we give what's extra versus brotherly or sisterly giving where we give when we have more, we give more in a more open way. And then finally a regal or kingly or queenly giving where we give the best that we have because the joy of giving is better than possessing anything. And, and where I tie that into this idea that, you know, from the system, you know, the belief system that I carried and what is common in Western culture was this transactional relationship. Tentative giving would be like giving a fast offering of the money that you saved because you didn't eat that day, right? I had extra money because I fasted that day. Versus brotherly or sisterly giving in the transactional standpoint was uh, a prophetic leader says, if you double your fast offerings, you'll double your blessings. And so you test it out. And before you know it, you're giving four or five hundred or six or eight hundred a month and fast offering money because you experience growth in your life and you think that that's God blessing you because you have this transactional relationship where you're giving more. And then 
the transition goes to people learn that this joy of giving is better than possessing things over time. And it's just a very different quality of generosity when it's a transactional relationship than when it's something that you're nourishing inside of yourself without this expectation or that you're satisfying a, a divinity that, you know, is keeping score, things like that. And I think about the same thing with regard to virtue and integrity in, in the second one is that I, I would go before a, a worthiness interview, a temple recommend interview, and I would ask, have you been honest in your dealings with your fellow humans? And, and I would mentally do an accounting as to how transparent and how honest I was to people. And, and that sense of integrity was a core value that I had that was a major contributor to my eventual faith transition because my values of transparency and integrity were in conflict with what I learned about my faith tradition when I studied its history. But in any event, nourishing these different things, like Brick said, is it's very different in this Eastern thought rather than a transactional Abrahamic religion or the faith tradition, the version of Mormonism that I came from. It's very, very different. Yeah, you uh, you hit there on virtue and integrity, and and I also want to tie that into discernment and wisdom. So virtue to me is you know responding to the world in ways that are are healthy. You're not you're not manipulating. You're not coercing. You're not being condescending. You're you know all of those negative ways in which we you know gluttonous or greed or um, any way that we take advantage of the world around us and maybe specifically the people in it and operate in ways that are selfish. And integrity kind of also adds a component of what your thoughts are, what your actions are, what your body language is, what your way in which you interact with the world has some consistency to it. And so integrity to me often means that I say what I mean and I mean what I say. And and again, it's also worded as virtue in places. And virtue to me means that I'm moving through the world recognizing the good and the harm that I can do at any given moment and trying my best to be healthy uh, to the world around me and not try to be a taker. Um, And it doesn't mean that you don't get what you need to get. Like I need to eat and I need to have a house and I need to get to work every day. Like the world works a certain way. It doesn't require you to go live in a cave. It doesn't require you to take everything you have and and give it to your neighbor. It it requires you to be um, kind and compassionate as you move through the world, knowing when you need to take to keep yourself alive and to do what you need to do. And when you need to give to improve someone else's situation so that as Buddhism is always trying to do that, you're reducing suffering in the world. And then tying that into the discernment and the wisdom discernment and wisdom to me is that extra layer of awareness that I have when I go out into the world to know that, you know, there's a lady behind me, who has one thing in her shopping cart and to give her a chance to get in front of me because I've got 50 things because I've got time to do it. Or that I'm sitting at a uh, a get together and one person says something, but I know that it hurts somebody else on the other side. And so I now make a comment that is charitable to the person who said the thing and also creates some cushion for the person that it hurt. And it, to me, is much more awareness of what is all going on around me and how what I do or how others are interacting in this space affects everything else. And now trying to 
reduce those sharp edges and add in uh, positive and goodness at every turn where I can, as I seek to kind of be aware. It's you have to get out of, in, in part, it sounds like you have to get out of your own head, but in some ways it really is getting inside your head a little bit and kind of um, having focus on people and things around you and how every action is impacting uh, everyone. And that may sound, again, I'm rambling, it may sound really difficult to do that, but I find there are moments where that really comes kind of easy when you are being present uh, with your situation. You know, in some ways, this is like a return to simplicity, right? Like, um, you know, the teaching of Jesus that we need to become like little children. Um, I think I I thought of that when Jack was talking about wisdom, because he made a a point of making a distinction between the wisdom and and not being needing knowledge. Sometimes we think of wise people as people who are 75, 85, and they've lived a long time, and they've learned a lot, and they know everything, and now they can have wisdom. But he made a point of um, talking about a monk who had was cloistered and had no idea that the earth was round, and yet he was so wise and was able to help people with their lives. And, you know, I, as we as we grow up in this world, we our lives become complicated and we have hurts and then that brings on shame. And then we hide from the things that we have shame around and the ways that we hide brings on more problems. And, and so much of these, uh, these qualities that the Buddha is talking about, it is a return to our childhood, to the simplicity. This is why you, there are so many instances you hear. I, I wish I had one on the, on, on, I don't, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but just instances where a child can just speak truth to something so simple because they understand the basics of what is in alignment with our own integrity and virtue. And all of the adults in the room are like confounded by this child because they've been trying to work their way around all of their fears and all of their, um, all of their shame and, and not really trying to see things as they are. And I think sometimes children have no choice, but to be able to name things exactly as they are. And so um, I loved that. And I'll, I'll just say one other word about the renunciation one, because I think that's one of the harder ones for us to really get our mind around. <clears throat> because um, in in many uh, traditions, in, the, in many of the Buddhist traditions, this means an actual cloistering, like you are going to become a monk or a nun, and you are going to go renounce the world and live um, very, very simply. But Jack talks about this being a renunciation of the heart. And it reminded me of a conversation I wanted to say it was between Thomas McConkie and one of his mindfulness teachers, Shinzen Young, um, who says, you know, they were they were sharing war stories of their Zen retreats and how awful they are and all of the things they have to do to themselves and waking up at 3 a.m. and sitting Zen and, you know, um, and talking about how not everyone is going to have that experience where that's opportunity to go put themselves through all these things to learn the mindfulness to overcome all of this. And I believe it was Shinzen said, sooner or later, life will bring the monastery to you. And I think that's really true. You know, these challenges, it's one thing to learn how to do all this stuff and learn how to meditate and sit on the mat and do, and, and do that well and overcome yourself it's another thing to be able to take that into the world and to do that in the midst of the storms of your life. So that renunciation is just a feeling of letting go of 
our natural reactions, our hatred, our grasping, our attachment to the outcomes of things and just re-enunciating that we have any of the needs for anything to go exactly the way that we need it to go. Did did he say that renunciation is that is that where he puts in like the substances and the sexuality? Because it don't feels think like so. it kind of belongs there. Yeah, I, ta- I think a lot of these things belong in a lot of different categories. Yeah, he talks about uh, the renunciation of grasping, hatred, fear, greed, those kinds of things, and of thinking that we're in control of things. Yeah, I I think that any time we allow something someone, some thought to distract us from where we should be and what we should be doing. That feels like those are the things we need to renunciate, right? Those are the things we need to put distance between us. At any time we have a a motive or he uses, I think, again, saying drugs or sex, anytime we allow something inside our head or outside of ourselves to distract us from what we should be doing or where we should be, then maybe we need to do something different. I, I had something that I wanted to say about the wisdom piece, the number five. Um, when I was listening to it, I was thinking of uh, Elder Maxwell uh, t- talking about seeing things as they really are kind of thing. Um, but the dichotomy of it was um, when he talks about wisdom and seeing things as, as they really are, what Jack is referring to is that we don't live in dualistic terms and that we see things in the messiness that they are. And it remi- and as I was listening to that, re- that reminded me of Luna Lindsay, who wrote the book Recovering Agency and has done a multi-part series with uh, John DeLynn on Mormon stories. And, and, and she talks about when, when we don't read messy books, when we don't study messy history, when we don't watch rated R movies, we receive stories that are very dualistic and black and white in their presentation. But when we watch, you know, Peaky Blinders on Netflix, or we watch Shawshank Redemption, or we do, we study really messy history, we, we learn that life is way more complicated and, and heroes are also villains and villains also have redeeming qualities. And, and there's wisdom in understanding that life is, shouldn't be seen through a dualistic prism. And uh, anyway, that's what I got out of the wisdom piece. Cool. Anything I one, on? I have one more. Yeah. Please. I have one more thing to add on wisdom and I, then I think we can move on. But um, Jana was looking for the, a moment where a child just had profound wisdom and I just wanted to share one. So I have, um, I have bees on my property, which has been a really spiritual experience for me to really get involved with this super organism of bees. And, and, um, you know, I get, I'm a kind of a headspace person. And so I got really into the science and how they're communicating with each other and all this stuff. And, uh, I was explaining some of this to my child as we're eating and, we're eating uh, a little bit of honey and I'm explaining, you know, bees live only 45 days. They contribute a quarter teaspoon of honey to their hive. And so this honey that we're eating is, is, you know, I'm going into some of the science of it as, as, as we're just sitting and eating and me, I'm just, you know, just overwhelmed by the complexity of this, of this kind of, or, you know, this super organism and my son just kind of sat as he's eating and sitting there and we're just trying to savor, you know, this gift of honey for my bees. And he just said, we should go out on the property and plant flowers for them. And it was just this pure moment of like, I'm getting caught up in, 
in how many days the bees are alive and how it all works. And he was able to just really see in the moment, the bees gave us this gift. We're sitting and eating this honey. It was an entire life's work of a bee, um, multiple bees, you know, by the time we put it on a piece of toast. And the natural generosity of him just saying, we need to go out there and plant some flowers for them. And it was just such a pure moment of wisdom, right? Because you can get an advanced degree in bee studies, but the wisdom was these, we took a surplus of honey from these bees and, and we need to give something back in return for them because we're dependent on them, you know, and in this beautiful kind of symbiotic relationship. And so that's the different, that was just a key moment of, of true wisdom for me. And it's been very personal for me in my life as I've gone on, education has been a foundation of my life. And when I started my history degree, I knew so much about the world and God and all these things. And now I'm at the dissertation level at a, you know, in a theology program. And I literally am like, well, I know nothing, (laughs) nothing. (laughs) At the end of this theology degree, I know nothing about God. And it, you know, it's just been a, a change of perspective for me to just really concentrate on what wisdom really is in light of how little, uh, we just understand the world, how, what our limitations are for understanding these big questions. So anyway, that, that's just an example of wisdom from my life. Oh, I love it. Um, did we say anything about persistence and energy? Um, we, we didn't, I can, I can say something. Please. Um, so he talks about this being the, the wise use of energy, right? Um, which to me, it just feels like intentionality showing up, being present, giving your energy to things that are in alignment for you. And um, the thing that struck me with this, of course, I'm hearing everything through this perfectionist lens, um, is not being afraid to make mistakes, but to offer ourselves as best we can. I think about how often in my life I've held myself back out of fear of making a mistake or looking a certain way, um, rather than coming from this intention of, I'm just going to show up in the in my the best intention of my heart and and let the chips fall where they may and there's something very freeing to that in um to my heart and um he also quotes has this quote from Richard Kipling on this um when we meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same we will discover the secret of happiness yeah, I remember that was beautiful. It was. I, I think about those two things as imposters, as if, you know, uh, triumph and disaster, <laughs> you know, those, it doesn't feel like an imposter. Those feel very real in my life. <laughs> but, um, but I think that's the point, right? We, we attach to these things. We, we find them to be so important, whether I'm, I'm doing good things and being seen to be doing good things, or if I'm failing. And, Rather than seeing those just just coming from a completely different lens from I need to experience these good things and I don't want to experience the bad things, but rather I just need to show up and be me and be real and, and with a kind heart and things will go okay. This is, this is the secret to happiness. The, the note that I wrote on that section was to have the courage and the wisdom 
to know what is possible to grow in your metaphorical garden in the present moment and not force what won't grow in that garden. Mm. Yeah, I love that. Mm. All right. I Yeah, I've got other things I could say, but let's they're not going to be as good as filling the time with other things you guys are saying. So let's the, uh, the next five are um, let's see here. Patience, uh, which again, he kind of also throws in like, let's call this constancy um, truth, determination, goodwill, and equanimity. So what are your guys's thoughts on those five? Anything kind of stand out to get us started? Well, I'll just say a word about that constancy thing, just to clarify what what uh, was being talked about there. This was something that uh, Jack was quoting Suzuki Roshi, who's a, a Zen master. Um, he he basically said that patience is the wrong translation. So Jack started talking about how patience um, we the need for it in our society because we're all in a hurry. We're just always in a hurry. And even kids are on this track to grow up and do it well and have hit all their milestones. And we're just, we're, we're just in a hurry in our society. Um, and we tend to think that peace, happiness, that thing is just around the corner. And if we, if we just chase it, then, um, then we're going to get there. We're going to somehow get there. But if you notice in your lives, the thing you think is going to bring it, you get there and you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> It didn't solve everything for me. We're so confused by that. So um, he quotes a couple of people in this. Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a, a wonderful Buddhist teacher. Um, he says, if you think peace and happiness are somewhere else and you run after them, you will never arrive. So it's only when you recognize again that all of that is here for you in the present and you just peel off all the layers and see that it's here. But um but the patience is the reason that Suzuki Roshi, I think, was pointing out that patience is the wrong idea is that patience, um, it implies that we're waiting for something. It implies that we're, we're holding on and just, I just have to be patient until that thing happens. So it still implies a grasping where this idea of constancy is just recognizing that it's just here. There's nothing that we're having to be patient or impatient for. We are just recognizing that that peace and happiness and constancy is right here all the time. Yeah. He says like, be present here and here and here. And and there is truth to when you are present in this moment, this moment actually lasts longer than when you're not present. So it's right in front of you. It's just, it's just sitting here right now and doing all these other things uh, and the magic happens. Hmm. Good stuff. Yeah, he, he said the future is just an idea and the past is just a thought. Mm. And it's really true when you think of it in those terms. It's the yeah. present is really the only thing that is real. Mm. Okay. What other ones? That was really good, Jana. I'm just, I'm chewing on that. I'm just, I'm vibing with the, with all that. That was good. Um, I, I love, so he shared us, he doesn't often share, um, things about Jesus or parables from the New Testament, but he shared a, a parable from the New Testament about, you know, Jesus calming the storm and the, the kind of obvious symbolism there that when kind of the commotion of the world begins to enter in you, that you can, you know, peace be still and you can calm, calm those storms um, within yourself. And I, I just think it's so interesting that um, I think the, the, 
the teachers that I know who are like Jack, who use the stories of Jesus, they almost kind of have to step outside Christianity for a little bit and kind of understand um, some of these principles or Eastern philosophy or mysticism. And then once you do that, you can kind of return back to Jesus and really kind of take out these gems that are just as much, you know, uh, you know, every, the, the parallels between Buddha and Jesus truly are there. The, the difference is that the structure that the West put around Jesus, right, by um, certain theologies and hoops you have to jump through and things you have to say and Jesus does this for you and he's a, he's a God in this way. It, it's, it's such baggage around the true mystic nature and the radical uh, revolutionary that he was that you almost have to step outside of it for a second to come back in to see the beauty of, of some of these teachings of Jesus that were as influential in the West as Buddha was in the East. And so I just love when he um, is interchanging between stories about the Buddha and stories from Jesus and going back and forth because there's just these obvious beautiful parallels. But it just takes a little bit of effort to remove the 2,000 years of baggage that we've put around Jesus and about how we're sinful and you need Jesus and say these things and take the sacrament and you'll be saved in heaven and hell. I mean, you just have to kind of put that aside to see the Buddha nature in Jesus. And I love how he um, illustrated that by just interchanging the stories back and forth because it helps me come back to the things that I've always really loved about Jesus in a healthier way. I just have to say, amen, Brittany, you're speaking to my heart because that's exactly my contemplative and mysticism. Those studies saved Christianity for me and saved Jesus for me for all the reasons you you said it beautifully. Thank you. Yeah. A lot of evangelical critics say that Mormonism has a different version of Jesus. And so it must not be true. But what you're pointing out is traditional Orthodox Christianity has a version of Jesus that is probably not actually the and a, American, you know, gun blazing Trump Jesus is quite horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite, it's quite a transformation. <laughs> yeah. If, if anyone ha- has a, a moment, just Google GOP Jesus and, and there's a video out there that is. Oh, some of those are pretty funny. Yeah. Pretty dang funny. So I wanted to touch on number seven, truthful heart, as it being different than the virtue and integrity one that was the number two one. And and he talks about this value of speaking truth that that it brings light to our lives, that we tell truth to ourselves and to society to speak. But he also talks about with the, the thoughtfulness or the wisdom behind speaking what is true and helpful and and doing it in due season. So he says, in due season, I will speak gen- gently kind with kindly intent and compassion, and I will respond with compassion and mercy. And, and uh, I, I think a lot of times when people go through some sort of existential crisis and reconstruction and so forth, they, they be, be in the midst of that transition, they're so focused on accuracy that sometimes in their engagement with individuals, um, they miss that there, there is a, there's a thoughtfulness be, be basically not, you know, vomiting, uh, word vomiting all over people. And, and I thought that was helpful. I know that this is a mistake that I've made at different times, uh, in, in, in terms of just being thoughtful in terms of, 
I, I can I can speak to truth. I can talk about accuracy. I I can I can talk about these kinds of things. But it, it's something that I do in good season, depending on where a person is and what would be helpful and thoughtful for that other person. Right. Not to add truth, which also creates unnecessary suffering. Right. Yeah. 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 Mm. yeah something. Some other thing. Another thing about truthfulness. <clears throat> He said that uh, Jack mentioned that the Buddha did misguided things, but he never lied about it. And I, I see this so often in the work that I do in coaching, and I, I feel it within myself that at times when I've done misguided things, again, that shame kicks in. And the, 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 one of the best ways through shame is to be able to speak to the our misguided things in truth with someone who can hold it with someone who is not going to hold it over our heads, you know, in a, in a safe place. It's one of the most beautiful ways to let go of that shame and just get back into truthfulness and get back in alignment. And there's such freedom and peace that comes with that act. That, that comes into the power of vulnerability, right? And mm -hmm. that Brene Brown talks about that, that we have different friends that we've witnessed the power of their vulnerability. And then there's a saying that that uh, turns out has some value, and that is um, the best time to eat crow is when it's still warm <laughs> rather than, <laughs> than let it, you know, get cold and rotten. And so sometimes uh, it's just helpful to vulnerably be honest about mistakes that we've made and eat crow and and uh, be vulnerable, vulnerable about it and move forward. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Um, I'll say a word about determination. So I think that one's what we had numbered here is number eight. Um, this wasn't one I necessarily caught in terms of what Jack was saying about it, but in my own head, my thought is that, you know, being present every moment's impossible. We constantly get caught up in doing something else and suddenly we find ourselves not present. And I think the secret to this practice is the moment you notice yourself not being present, you jump right back into being present again. Like I'm determined to keep doing it. I'm determined to keep trying. And in each moment that I waste not being present, soon as I pick up on it, I'm right back to enjoying this moment as present. And honestly, I probably have way more moments where I'm not present than ones that I am. But as each day passes, I find myself being more present than the week before or the month before or the year before. And that to me is the determination factor that each of us, as we're, as we're trying to live this out, each of us are trying to kind of put that principle into our life. Yeah. This was another place where I kind of perked up um, similar to the place earlier where uh, we're not supposed to have joy in our generosity. Um, one of the other messages I've gotten is that we're supposed to be so self-sacrificing that I'm not worried about the self. I'm not worried about me at all. And sometimes I think about this when I think about Buddhism, I think, oh, it's too self-sacrificing. I just can't take more of that. I can't take more of these wisdom traditions <laughs> telling me to be self-sacrificing. And, and I have to say, these are also traditions that were started by men. So there is that. But one of the things I perked up in the way Jack talked about this is he talked about that part of this dedication and determination is to be true to ourselves and our own hearts. 
And I think that is a piece that gets left out of all of this generosity, you know, give, give, give kind of, you know, yes, there is joy in giving. Yes, there is joy in generosity. And you've got to be doing that from a place of being true to yourself, resource to yourself, loving yourself. That all of that is not bad. It is not bad in any of these traditions to take care of yourself and to value yourself and be true and in alignment with the self. I got that and message. That, Sorry, go ahead. Finish. Yeah. No, I'm just, I just, I, I think that it's, it's a thing with the, you know, <laughs> the wisdom traditions, the male gurus, we we have so many of them and they, they are speaking to this really true thing of let go of the ego let go of the self, you know, these are all really important things. But I just want to note for for all the women out there, in a lot of this, sometimes we women need to build the ego first, we need to build the self first, we need to be given permission for that, before we can even step into that place of letting it go in a healthy way. That is such that's such a healthy that's such an interesting point that I'm sure comes from years and years and years of, of coaching women and seeing that they are giving every moment of the day to try to fill in their own self-worth, right? And that that takes care to be able to, because you're balancing, right? You're balancing your yourself and, and your generosity for others. And sometimes for women, it needs to kind of come from the other direction. But for me, I got that same message that you were talking about when he was doing the energy section, because that was, what is, what are you going to use your life energy towards? And I love this quote that says, you know, your, your second life begins when you realize that you only have one. And that to me is like, okay, that's my, I don't know if you'd use the word ego in that place, but but I have, I have a voice and I have a certain amount of limited energy. And if I'm going to do something in this world, it's going to be something that no, no one else is going to understand. It's a path that no one else can tell me where it's going to go or what it's going to look like. It has to come from my truest, deepest self because anything less, you'll look back and say, I gave my life energy towards that. that, that that's not even me. And so that to me is where that's the place where I preserve, you know, my sense of self is that um, I I have this limited life. You don't know when it's going to end. What are you going to put your energy towards? That really is a creative expression of yourself and also the universe in you, right? That the gift that you have to give the world and that's going to be uniquely you. And that's the place like, oh, okay, I can, I can claim myself here while also continuing to work on my loving kindness and generosity um, and holding those two kind of in balance. Um, that's where that's, that's the juicy spot. But yeah, I mean, I mean, even in healthy child development, the first half of life, you need to be developing an ego and community so that you're healthy enough to kind of whittle it down. But if you don't, as a child, if you don't build an ego or identity, it can actually hurt you later on. So there is there is a way to kind of do this in a healthy way, um, because if you don't have any sense of self, you can't function in the world at all. And so you, you can live in a cave and that's, you know, that's fine. But um, you do have to kind of put on the clothing of ego and do work in the world, but just be able to take it off, you know, not cling to it. So anyway, you're I, you're. You're reminding me of spiral dynamics, right? Like this all builds on the previous steps, the previous experiences, the previous stage behind us. And you really do have to be somewhat successful at those previous stages in order to enter the new stage and to build on what was behind you. 
Absolutely. Yeah, Jack talks about, he says, uh, we should lead from our heart and not the circumstances around us. And so, Jenna and Britt, as you were talking about those things, I was thinking of of friends who, uh, women uh, who grew up being told that their identity was childbearing and nurturing, and then they got married really young and then had lots of kids or some didn't have as many kids. And and then something happens at some point in their life if they don't have the experience of raising kids and then having kids over such an extended period of time that their nurturing role just continues on as a grandmother, but they have a break, like they become empty nesters. And all of a sudden, all their enmeshment of identity was based on their circumstance of nurturing and childbearing. And all of a sudden, they're empty nesters and... And they experience, several of my friends have experienced an existential crisis, not from a change of faith or anything else like that, but just that what what is their identity? Because it was so wrapped up in nurturing and caring and child uh, raising and bearing and so forth. It, 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 it's tough. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this applies in broader ways, in in ways we're really seeing come to the forefront in society right now that we're grappling with, especially in this country, um, about unity and diversity. I mean, so many of these wisdom traditions, Buddhism, Christianity, they want us, we want us all to be one. Like, that's the highest ideal. We're all children of God. We're all, we all have Buddha nature. We all are one, which is a beautiful message. It's something that is that is wonderful. And I think it also has to be balanced with this ability for everybody to also own their identities and recognize that different di- identities and diversity is not the thing that is going to take us away from that unity, that we can have the unity with diversity. It does not require uniformity. And I, I, I see this dynamic playing out in um, different places within religion, within politics, where people with privilege don't understand that need because their identity has always been um, uplifted and celebrated. That it's sometimes there's there's not a recognition that people who have not had that privilege really, really do need to have their identities um, lifted up and recognized and solidified and that our way to unity is through that but the privileged misunderstand it because yes. they perceive it as divisiveness correct because and it takes away from their sense of identity absolutely and you can you can see how that would be and i i, I empathize with it and i've even seen this in places like the living school that you know i have a lot of love for they're they're wrestling with this because they're trying to to help us non-identify and get beyond this in all of these, you know, lofty ways. And they're also running into seeing and recognizing how that can be really harmful and difficult for the the minority people um, who attend the school. And so to their credit, they pay attention to it. And this is, it's all messy. There is no magic wand for any of this. I don't care how enlightened you are. There is no magic wand. One of the beautiful things that all of these things are speaking to that we're talking about today is the answer is not not talking about it. The answer is bringing it out into the light, looking at it, getting real with it, getting truthful with it, and bringing a compassionate heart to it. Yeah. 
Hmm. The uh, the last two here, which you, I think you guys are kind of hitting on anyway in these last couple of comments, this goodwill and equanimity, this idea, you know, again, in our society, I think it's very clear. I think maybe in other places in the world, this would be a little more ambiguous or subtle, but you can see privilege, who has it and who doesn't, uh, at least if you're on this side of life and trying to sit with those things. And um, I, I've got friends, you know, white males here in America, right? They're, they're, they've got a certain degree of privilege. I've got a certain degree of privilege. And we'll get in a conversation where we're talking about how we need to create more uh, equanimity and more balance. And that all sounds good to those men and myself, by the way, it all sounds good to those men as the conversation's going on just the idea. Right. And then I notice sometimes like an actual moment arises where that guy or myself has to give up a little bit of that privilege in order to create the balance. And suddenly those of us with privilege, when that happens, it it feels it it kind of hurts, right? It feels like I'm losing something. And uh, anyway, what what's happened recently is when I see those moments, I just say it out loud: like, why are you why are you frustrated that you just lost a little bit of your privilege? Like, do you not really believe in equality? Do you not really believe in equanimity? And I think it it is really hard to see your blind spots. It's easy to see someone else's. It's easy to see how someone else is taking advantage of a situation. I have one hell of a time seeing it in the mirror. And I think part of this idea of equanimity is to look around at the animals, at the plants, at the other humans. Because even on that big, giant level, we treat other forms of life as if they are beneath us because they don't think thoughts the way we think thoughts. And I'm... I'm pretty certain that the universe or planet earth doesn't give a shit about how the thoughts we think and what we think about ourselves. And that on some level doing equanimity means stop thinking you're better than everything else because you have thoughts. And, and as you pointed out earlier, Jana, this idea of being okay with tragedy and triumph, disaster and triumph. I've tried to relate this to trees before. If, if we're a tree in the wilderness and the forest catches on fire, that feels like disaster. And in reality, it's just another process on planet Earth, and good and bad as we see it will come from that. If you come back five years later, there's new life that wouldn't have been there. There's there's new things happening that wouldn't have happened if, if the fire had never happened. And so it really is just recognizing like we happen to have thoughts, but we're again, we're just the universe doing its thing. And um, there isn't any part of this universe that's lesser or greater than any other part. And then when you start to now zero in with laser focus on just humans and how we treat each other different, and we can't even get that right. Like let's, let's start to sit with that imbalance and let's start creating equanimity. It reminds me of a poem I just read from Mary Oliver, where she talks about um, the, you know, and Mary Oliver's beautiful poets always using nature to bring, um, these beautiful deep truths out. And she tells uh, a poem about a, a, a frog who gets eaten by a heron. And she talks about this frog and how this frog is her brother. And then she talks about the heron and the heron is also her brother. And so she put, she dresses in black and dances. Mm, mm, mm. So I had two things, but I like to hear what Brit has to say. <laughs> Um, I'm going to gather my thoughts while you talk. You go. 
Okay, so there was there was two things. One on the equanimity, he he refers to it as a quality of not removal from the world, but a caring for things from a place of a peaceful heart. That's kind of different than than the saying to be in the world but not of the world, right? It's to be in the world and to be one with the world or part of the world yeah, with a peaceful heart. I, I just, I thought that was helpful. And then, the, and then the other thing that he shared was a story of a woman in Peru that I want to share. And whether, whether we take this story from a literal standpoint or a metaphorical standpoint, I, I think there's value in the story. And there was a story, it has to do with the loving kindness and compassion, the goodwill, friendliness, and loving kindness for others. This woman in Peru served her community um, with her hands. And over time, she developed rheumatoid arthritis, which was crippling. And and so she came, she went to another country, I think it was the United States, and had her hands operated on because they became so crippled and, and they would end up being uh, sacred. Her hands were sacred for her because she used her hands to serve others. So then the woman returns to Peru, but due to her illness, she, she decides to live at a lower altitude than the high altitude in Peru doing the work that she used to do. So all these circumstances had changed. And then she goes around and, and wants to serve others, but she can't do it the same because her hands are crippled. And over time, she develops this ministry of just walking together with people in their experience, not using her hands, but being there with them, walking with them, sitting with them. And the level of connection and meaning and compassion and loving kindness that she exuded for others made people want her to stay regardless of her ability to use her hand. And, and I, I listened to that story a couple times uh, to think about what, what loving kindness means what this acceptance of our current circumstances means and and being open to more than a dualistic thinking of what service is to others and what loving kindness is to others. I, I just thought it was a beautiful story. Hmm. Absolutely. I love that it one of the phrases that he said during that is it's the ministry of walking together. You know, there's this concept we talked about at the living school, um, solidarity rather than service. If we're going to do good in the world, it's coming from a place of solidarity of walking with somebody, not I'm I'm in my place of privilege and I think I know what you need and I'm going to make myself feel good by going and doing something for you. Um, it's, it's not holding yourself above, but it's actually getting into the place with the other people who are also suffering and sitting with them and being willing to experience it with them and putting your body on the line with them. Um, that is a whole different kind of, um, of ministry that lifts the other person up and doesn't just make them feel worse. We're, that, we're really good. They're having to accept the charity, right? Yeah, we're really good at service with our hands. And so yeah. if there's someone in our congregation who has a death in their family or a new baby or an illness or something like that, like the compassionate service and the mm -hmm. we go mow their lawn and we take them food and we do all of these acts of service that are certainly meaningful and helpful, 
but there's something, there's a level of discomfort, but a level of grace and love and compassion of just going and sitting with that parent who lost their child in a car accident that is so much more expansive, not meaning that we shouldn't do the others, but so much more expansive than than taking them a dinner. Right. I, I think it's the reason that we all love to serve and we hate to be served is because we can, I think we can just inherently feel those different levels of, of the place that we situate. So there's something really beautiful about just holding hands and walking together and mourning with people. Mm-mm. Well, the only thing I have left to add um, is just kind of my own experience on how much developing, you know, you can do various things to uh, put these pr- practices and principles into your life. Um, but the one that's changed my life the most is kind of having a nightly ritual of loving kindness. Um, and when I'm tired, it, it may just be in bed. I just kind of say to myself, may all beings be well, may all beings be happy, peace, peace, peace. And I just kind of end with that note. And when I have more time, um, you know, I'll sit on my mat and, and kind of do a loving kindness kind of meditation. And it really has transformed my life because in those moments, I'll know that the next day I need to apologize to one of my children and kind of re- repair a relationship where... I got a little snippy or whatever I, whatever I did. And, you know, I want it to be something in my home that, that when you do something not loving or kind, you say sorry and you give hugs. And, and just, so just last weekend, I was in a big kind of extended family kind of fight. And I swear to you 10 years ago, without, without having developed this loving kindness kind of practice, this compassion practice, 10 years ago, if I would have had the same fight with my in-laws, it probably would have ended the relationship. Like it would have just been over. And I would have just said, you said this about me. I don't have to apologize for shit, right? That would have been my response. And I literally was able to do, and it was almost a meditative practice. I drove to their house. I sat down. I started off with how much I love and care about them and how much the relationship means to me. I really watched my ego as certain accusations came up that I thought were unfair or judgmental or whatever, and could just like watch my ego and just be aware of it. And but in that moment, choose to lead with some kind of bridge of of compassion or love and understanding. And through a very difficult conversation, where I really had to have a check on my own ego and have a practice where I am giving love and compassion and building bridges, no matter if it's received or not, right? Just because that's the person I want to be. I was able to kind of repair a relationship that in previous years probably would have been broken for some time. And so developing a loving kindness, whether it's when you take a take a shower or at night or in the morning, it really has been transformative to the relationships in my life because you don't get so caught on he said this about me or he thinks that about me or I feel this when I'm around him. It's just it's just all kind of ego, small self space. And when you become more aware of that, you can lead with the kind of compassion and mercy that you hope others give to you. And it can really transform your relationships. 
Um, and I've seen that just as recently as this past weekend where I just, I drove over to someone's house to have a hard conversation and eat crow while it's hot and apologize for my stuff, whether or not they apologize for their stuff. And it, it really has been, um, transformative in my life to lead, to have a loving kindness, uh, a compassion ritual built into my life so that, uh, time doesn't pass for so long before I, uh, show love and kindness and say sorry to the relationships that are important to me. Yeah. I, uh, all that's beautiful. And it, it reminded me, I'm watching a, a TV show right now on HBO and it's one of these shows where they're doing a really good job of showing you why humans do what they do. And sometimes we see somebody doing something. We're like, man, you shouldn't have done that. That was a bad, that was unhealthy of you to do. But they did it in such a way that you really can see how the human got to that point. And even though he's offending the other person, you can actually see like, oh, like this is what he's trying to do. He's trying to accomplish this. He's trying to protect himself from that. And this last one of Goodwill, because you guys hit on equanimity and I, I touched on that one too. This last one of Goodwill, which you guys are also hitting on, to me is this idea of operating in good faith. Like other humans that are doing things that violate your conscience that violate your morality, that violate uh, the way in which you want to show up in the world or allow others to show up in the world. They also got to that honestly. And we sometimes don't get it. Like if we see somebody who's, um, you know, you can go to the extremes of a serial killer, a child molester. Um, You can just go to somebody who lies in this moment because they're trying to protect themselves from embarrassment or shame or And once you start seeing how humans get to what they're doing, honestly, you can start to make space of like, let me stop making unhealthy assumptions. Let me stop making unhealthy judgments. Let me just sit with, hey, this person who's violating me in this moment is has come to this moment because of their shit behind them. Just like whatever my shit is in my life, I got to it naturally and honestly. And and, and it's not that you make space for bad behavior. You still create boundaries. You still hold people accountable. You still put distance between you and people who are going to harm you or your children or your parents or your friends or your neighbor. But you also, there's a bit of grace that you also can show up in every one of those interactions with as well. And it, and it may not end with you doing anything different in how you police it from your perspective, but it will make a complete difference in the narrative inside your head as you're doing it. Any other thoughts on on that or the other nine, anything else there that you guys want to get in before we, uh, before we end this conversation? Just a brief expression of gratitude. I love this word solidarity. Each, each three of you in various phases of my life have walked with me with something. And I just want to say like of all the, my house, I have gifts that I've received that are valuable to me. But the times where you've walked with me are the most valuable gifts that I hold in my heart. Same. Thank you so mm. much. Mm. I wouldn't want to have these conversations with anybody else. Like, this is the reason I picked you three. Thank uh, you. There wasn't four other people who turned me down. You were, you were my original <laughs> three to do this. Uh, because I knew that you would all work together well to unravel all of this stuff that Jack is talking about. Um, these conversations are sacred to me and uh, I appreciate each and every one of them. So we will return one more time for episode number or session number 12. And uh, again, appreciate each of your time today and I'll let you guys get back to what you're doing. Thank you for each of you being a beautiful human being. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take it easy. Bye.